Ba, ba, ba. I'm loving it. Marketing. It works. Do these ads work? I don't know. I think so. We'll see. Just sat down with Greg Foss. It's hairy out there. The asymmetry of Bitcoin's value prop has never been more clear in the asymmetry of the potential returns of Bitcoin on a risk-adjusted basis have never been better. Greg explains it in this interview. Highly recommend you freaks listen to the whole thing because we cover a lot. Speaking of a lot, if you're looking to buy a lot of Bitcoin, Unchain Capital is here for you. They have a trading desk now available in 32 states. They just added Nebraska. So if you're a corn husker looking to stack some corn, Unchained is here for you. It's the best way to buy Bitcoin, the most secure way to buy Bitcoin. Usually people buy on exchange, they hold it there, they wait until they get a hardware wallet, they do all that stuff. No, Unchained Capital. You buy at unchained.com slash trading. And the Bitcoin goes straight into a two or three multi-sig vault that you control. Since you have two keys, straight to multi-sig cold storage. No stress about moving it off the exchange. No stress about the exchange getting rug pulled. Because Unchained doesn't hold it at all. You don't have to move it off the exchange because they move it straight to your wallet as soon as you buy it. It's the best way to buy Bitcoin. If you haven't set up a vault yet, if you're a Bitcoiner, if you're a high net worth individual, if you're a business who has Bitcoin on your treasury, I highly recommend setting up a two or three multi-sig vault with Unchained. I use it for my businesses. I use it for some of my personal stash. It gives me peace of mind. Go get peace of mind when you're buying Bitcoin and when you're holding Bitcoin. Go to Unchained.com. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains, 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 brains. This is what an individual does after they download Brains OS Plus firmware onto their ASIC. They can't help but just break out into a brains cheer. Brains, brains. You start pounding the desk, pounding the table, smacking your ASIC in the ass. Brains, brains, brains. You're just jacked up. Because you just idiot-proofed your mining operation, you're going to stack more sats. There's nothing you can do but start cheering, slapping that ass of that ASIC, okay? The Brains OS Plus firmware is going to allow you to stack more sats. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with the firmware, you should download it. If not, you're an idiot. You don't want to be an idiot. Nobody wants to be an idiot. God. And if you download the firmware and you point your hash at Brains Pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees. Go check this out at brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. You can check out the firmware, check out Brains Insights, which is your one-stop shop for all your mining data needs and calculator needs. Check out their blog. Check out the pool. Full stack mining company, baby. The key. Brains.com. This trip was also brought to you by good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. You need some liquidity? You need some stablecoin liquidity? You got some Bitcoin? You want to use this collateral for some liquidity? You want low rates? You go to lend.hodlhodl.com. They have a peer-to-peer lending platform with no KYC, no AML. It leverages Bitcoin native multi-sig properties. You put your Bitcoin into a 203 multi-sig escrow wallet. You have one key. Your counterparty has one key. Hodlhodl holds the third key. Can't move that Bitcoin since you only have one key, but you have visibility into 
the escrow wallet so that you know your sats are not being rehypothecated. So if you pay back your stablecoin loan, plus the interest, at the end of the day, you're going to get your sats back. Alternatively, if you have stablecoins and you want yield on them, you lend them out. Somebody looking to use Bitcoin as collateral for the loan, they pay you back what you gave them plus interest. That's how you get the yield. That's where the yield comes from in this case. So go to lend.hodlhodl.com. Again, no KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer, leverages Bitcoin's multi-sig properties. It's a beautiful thing. It's a way, it's a way to build financial products in, in the Bitcoin standard. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here to take care of all your mining needs. You're mining at home. They have the black box for you. If you use the code FREAKS at shop.upstreamdata.ca, you're going to get 5% off the black box. Bring the black box to your home. You plug it in. You put the miners in the box. You turn them on. They make a, a, a loud noise. You close the box and that goes from that to your mining sats. It's so cool. This is so cool. Your mining sats. You have like two, two to four ASICs and you're just making money. Non-KYC AML sats. You're so cool. You're so hot. You're hot. That's the ASICs talking to each other. Hey, dude, you're hot. Hey, you're hot, too. Yeah, we're solving all these hash functions. Producing all these hashes. Of course we're hot. But thank God we're in this black box. Because it makes sure that we don't catch anything on fire. Because it takes care of airflow. and has flame-retardant parts to it. It's awesome. Use the code FREAKS. 5% off. Also, if you want, like, a hash hut. If you want to mine using stranded gas or uh, if you have extra capacity at a utility and you want to mine Bitcoin with that, they, they produce these these data centers for mining with gas. They produce the generators too, purpose-built for mining. I have a hash up myself, 50 kilowatt. It's a fucking beast. It's a beast. I'm afraid to go near it. It's so beastly. Just kidding. I love going near it because it's cool. It's a cool product building things manship it's awesome good upstreamdata.ca tell them the tftc sent you if you buy the hash hut let them let let the sales team know hey we sent you over there if you're in oil and gas and you're looking to diversify your revenue streams don't be an idiot hit up upstream data and enjoy this episode with greg foss Ticky. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Mr. Foss, the boss. Welcome back, sir. It's a pleasure to be here, Marty. Thanks for having me. It's, the pleasure is all mine. This is a great way to end the week. We're recording on a on a Friday afternoon here. Uh, after, I mean, the markets are chaotic today, but they were relatively stable throughout the week. But in the last few weeks, things have been popping off, uh, particularly in the arena we discussed when you first came on this podcast, which is uh, the credit default swap arena both in sovereign debt markets and uh 
in the banking sector. I mean, financials. Yeah, yeah. Financials. Well, Marty, I wanted to thank you uh, publicly for my, uh, you know, you, you were my, you were my first date, man. You know, you, <laughs> you, you, you and I uh, started, uh, rip, uh, you know, talking about this and then your uh, podcast got viewed by some of the other, uh, you know, uh, important people in the community. And uh, it's, it's, it vaulted me into, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a point of being able to talk about this idea now. The truth is, I mean, there's not not everybody believes my methodology of valuing Bitcoin, and that's fine. Um, that being said, I've had some really, really complimentary, uh, uh, you know, personal um, feedback, including one guy who's it was a, a classic. He actually said this publicly. He goes, he goes, I'm a math nerd. I hate Bitcoin. He goes, I own it. But your thesis is the most compelling argument I've ever heard for why I should own a little bit more uh, Bitcoin. So here's a guy who actually hates the asset, hates the technology, understands the asymmetry of the trade, wasn't sure why. He was basically valuing it through the options market and saying, yeah, I can see a 20, you know, it's got, it's got it, the volatility implies that with a 5% position, you can get, uh, 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 you know, 15 to 50 times return. So he owns like probably 5%, but he goes, I was never into it for any value. And he goes, the CDS methodology, he's probably an ex-financial guy. He didn't, he understands options well enough that he he uh, certainly has experience there, but he basically said, this is the most, uh, uh, you know, this this thesis helped me get over the, over the edge in terms of why I do own essentially insurance on the fiat system. Does he still hate Bitcoin or does he get it more now? It's, I only got this feedback within the last two weeks. Okay. Cause uh, <laughs> it was, it was, I had sent it out. I, I was having this debate with, uh, with um, Joe, uh, Carla, 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 uh, on the, on the blue collar Bitcoin podcast. And Joe is one of the guys, and this is fine. He doesn't agree with my insurance thesis and that's cool. Uh, but um, I sent out a thread that basically valued Bitcoin uh, as simply as this. You, you take the default, uh, the current credit default swap market on the USA, and you multiply that by its uh, uh, unfunded debt, which is funded plus unfunded debt, which is now over 200 trillion US dollars. And you come up with a valuation just on the USA Bitcoin should be worth uh, approximately 1.2 trillion in market cap, and given that Bitcoin is trading for under 400 uh, 400 billion, uh, you're getting very cheap insurance on the USA. But here's the kicker: you're getting insurance on all the other countries in the world for free. Okay, if you think of it just that way, it's cheap protection on the USA. It's about one third the value it should be if you were just protecting against the potential default of the USA, which is very small, but not zero. But still, when you're dealing with $200 trillion worth of debt, that small default probability translates to an insurance premium of 1.2 trillion. Well, you're getting all the other countries in the world for free, Marty. Default <laughs> free. Now, the USA will be the last fiat currency to fail, in my opinion. So 
If you're getting protection on that for one third the price, and you get all the other currencies in the world for free, those are the currencies that you really should be worried about. And those are where people in those countries live that need Bitcoin even more than people who live in the USA. And then I'll go a little further and then people that live in Canada. But the truth is Canada's in bad shape. So I need Bitcoin way more than you need Bitcoin uh, as a US citizen. But compared to places like Nigeria and uh, soon to default Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps some Southern European countries, I will leave those off the map of potential default candidates. But here's the point. Lots of people in the world need insurance on the failure of their fiat currency. It's friggin' cheap. I can't say it any other, any other way. Yeah, it's a, it seems like a very good deal right now within the context of this theory. And I mean... Let's just talk about the environment we're in. Obviously, we have the Fed raising rates pretty significantly at a pace never seen before uh, in our lifetime. And it's obviously throwing a wrench in the global financial system. I mean, we had the Bank of England step into gilt markets last week. Uh, we, we had the Jet Bank of Japan step into yen markets the week before that. Uh, and then on top of that, even he, even though I would also concede the U.S. dollar may be the last to fail. I guess the question in my mind is how does it happen sooner than most people expect, especially in this high-rate environment when you look at I mean, that's one of the charts that's been really gaining steam uh, over the last week is the amount of interest that is owed yeah. by the U.S. on their debt alone. It's approaching $1 trillion annually as they jack up rates. Uh, and when Correct. you when you couple that stat with the fact that you have to imagine that tax revenues are going to decrease because uh, people aren't making as much money and they're being forced to spend uh, their discretionary income on things that weren't as expensive as they were only a year ago, energy and food, most specifically. And I guess you can throw healthcare in that as well. How, how dire is the situation? Let's, let's start. Um, sure. outside of the U.S. and then move toward the U.S. Okay. because what happened in yen markets and the, the Great sure. British Pound markets in recent weeks is a bit scary because, I mean, you mentioned Turkey and uh, other countries throughout the world that, that you expect it from, but when it comes to Japan and England, and that was yeah. a bit of a shock to me personally. Sure. So, well, let's start with, uh, I'm going to make one comment about the USA and then we'll, we'll move back overseas and then we'll come back. And my comment is simply this, look, uh, it was actually Robert Breedlove that uh, I came on scene and I said, look, all fiat currencies are melting ice cubes. And Breedlove loved that little line. And the truth is all fiat currencies are melting ice cubes. It's just their rate of decay is relative. And right now with the DXY, the Dixie, measuring the strength of the U.S. dollar relative to other melting ice cubes, uh, it's showing the strength of a fiat currency that has increased its interest rates. So the attractiveness of lending money or holding money in U.S. dollars has increased. Everything else being equal, a very simple formula called interest rate parity will lead you to essentially deposit money in the United States and hedge out your currency risk in the forward markets. And you can arb a higher return than if you left your money just in your domestic market. So that's what's hitting 
the Bank of Japan. Before I get to the Bank of Japan, though, or you know, the Japanese economy. So remember this, people. All fiat currencies are melting ice cubes. The US dollar, though, is just the best looking horse at the glue factory. Okay, that's all it is. All right. It's like you're you're uh, either the best crack house on a crack street, whatever you want to call it, it's just the best of the worst. Yeah. So the US ice cube sitting in a house that's room temperature is 42 degrees while the yen is sitting in one that's 72 so degrees. Beautiful. So the yen is sitting there because they are invoking yield curve control where their 10-year Japanese government bond, so JGB, Japanese government bond, is only yielding 25 basis points. So one and a quarter percent, excuse me, just a one quarter percent versus the current 10-year rate in the USA, just to make the math simple, is about 4%, okay? So there's a difference between the two countries of 3.75% in the 10-year term. What you can do is you can be a Japanese investor and you're, you can take yen, put it into U.S. dollars, which weakens the yen because you're selling yen, putting it in U.S. dollars, hold it in U.S. dollars, turn around and forward hedge your currency risk and get a bigger return back home. It's going to cost you on that forward hedge currency risk, but you're still going to make more than 25 basis points in the 10 year. It's called interest rate parity. You can't fool math. They're doing this. The problem is, so that puts downward pressure on the yen. What the Bank of Tokyo, uh, the, the Bank of uh, Japan is trying to do is defend the yen on the other side by selling treasuries out of their reserves to sell US dollars to buy yen back in the market. So you see how it's circular? You got the people in or in pension funds in Japan who might be incented to hold US treasuries, but you have the Bank of Japan, which is the largest holder of US treasuries, selling US treasuries. And they're a net seller. So you have the currency impact on the one hand, and you have the dynamic of a YCC yield curve control JGB bond, it's artificially held at 25 basis points. It's a disaster because it's circular, okay? So why doesn't it help the USA? Well, because the USA needs to raise more money for deficit uh, financing, and the biggest holder, the Bank of Japan, is also selling, all right? So that's a pressure on the, uh, on the US Treasury market. Fast forward to what happened in the Bank of England. That was a similar story, but not because of yield curve control per se in the uh, Bank of England. It was because they raised rates quickly as well, but that rate increase caused stresses in the pension funds in the UK, which employed a strategy called LDI or liability, uh, liability something investing. Um, anyway, what it meant is they basically added margin or leverage to their fixed income portfolios because yields had been driven so low, the only way they could attain their interest rate, or excuse me, their fixed income bogeys 
within the pension plan was to lever it. So these guys got margin from lenders where they basically got three times leverage to buy, let's say, the 30-year bond, the 30-year gilt in uh, the, the UK, which at one point last year, Marty, was yielding 1.25%. However, because of inf inflation pressures and Bank of uh, England uh, raising rates as well, that 30-year 1.25% yield went very quickly to 3%, which meant that bond price fell from 100 cents on the dollar to, I'm going to guesstimate at 3% yield, let's see, you're close to 220. It, it was down probably 35 points. So it went from, uh, from par, 100 cents on the dollar, down to 65. Okay. Ooh, that's a pretty big uh, little hickey there. And they were using leverage. They had three times <laughs> leverage, which meant that 35 uh, point or percentage point loss on the mark to market of their bonds uh, is actually close to 100% now when you're using three times leverage, right? right? However, it gets worse because then they have to raise margin. Their prime broker comes to them and says, guys, you have to post more collateral. Well, how are we gonna post collateral? You're gonna have to sell some of these bonds. Holy crap, I'm already down 35 points on these bonds. Okay, now I have to sell some. So all the guys that are levered start selling. And guess what happens? The price falls further. It went down into 42. Okay, now you're talking real losses, okay? In a, a supposed risk-free treasury bond or guilt bond. It's hilarious. It's not even funny. I'm actually laughing because I live that, right? I'm mm -hmm. I'm a high yield junk bond trader. I'm used to waking up to a tape bomb where a bond that I think is worth 90 cents on the dollar all of a sudden is trading at 60 cents on the dollar because of some tape bomb like earnings uh, a miss or uh, you know fraud in a company or whatever. Anyway, this is not supposed to happen to government bonds, all right? So more selling, more selling. Yields in the U in the UK go to five percent, over five percent in the long end, and the Bank of England basically goes, "Holy grace, I got to rescue my pension funds. If I don't step into the market, all the pensioners in England, they're offside, they're underfunded, their pension plans have lost all their savings on a mark to market basis. This is what happens when you use leverage in pension funds to." uh enhanced returns you can enhance returns but you can also enhance losses so it was a death spiral of a leverage unwind that the boe had to uh, step in to stem the losses now it was a temporary fix because the yields went from five percent marty back down to under four percent so the price made a modest recovery but since then the yields have ticked back up to about four and four thirty. The last time I looked, four point three percent on the UK gilt thirty-year gilt, and the bond prices have come back off of their little bounce. And it's bad if you're a pensioner in England. Imagine in the last ninety days you haven't opened your statement for ninety days. Well, let's say it's nine months. Okay, let's just say, oh yeah, you know, end of two thousand and twenty-one. Let's see where I am in September two thousand and twenty-two. Holy shit, yeah. I'm down 30%? Like, are you kidding me? So that's what's happening. You worked for the post office in UK, you open your, your, your statement and you're like, honey, you know, we're not in that good shape anymore. And this is real life shit.
Oh, yeah. It's scary, especially when you consider how quickly it happened because it started that Friday night, uh, bled into Sunday night here in the U.S. where the, the Great British Pound t- tanked to its lowest point ever against the dollar, Correct. 1.03. Uh, and then you had a little bit of panic, and then Wednesday was when the BOE stepped in and a bit officially announced that they were going to embark on as much QE as is needed and no more. That's the question, how much is needed? And uh, another variable to add to this conversation is they're embarking on QE only a month after 10% inflation print. And here's the truth, okay, guys? And this is what a lot of people miss. It is impossible to have any sort of quantitative tightening anywhere as a whole in the debt markets because total global debt has reached a point of over four times total global GDP. You have to print. Somewhere in the world can try to quantitative tighten, but that just means elsewhere in the world has to print more because it's a ecosystem made up of total debt, okay? Now, given that the USA is the world's most important economy and the world's largest debtor, them pretending that they're gonna do quantitative tightening is theoretically possible it just means that everywhere else in the world has to ease so much more to keep the, the whole world in balance. It, it's my opinion, QE infinity for the world is pretty simple. You're going to have to live with it. You'll probably have to invoke some sort of form of yield curve control to control your debt spiral. But what it means is fiat debasement is 100% certain. Like, I don't know why it's so difficult for people to understand that in a debt spiral where the increase in interest expense is what is growing your debt in the absence of any increased deficit spending because of entitlements or military, you have to print. It is the error term. It solves this debt spiral conundrum. It's like the simplest math I've ever seen. And people are like, well, don't forget, they say they're going to QT. Theoretically possible, but so unlikely because everyone else in the world is getting blown out of the water. And you mentioned, you know, your tax revenues. Yeah. Last year's tax revenues in the USA, 4.8 trillion. A lion's share of that, or not a lion's share, a large part of that was due to capital gains. There's not going to be any capital gains this year, people. There are destruction in the equity markets, destruction in the bond markets. So that portion of your tax revenues is gone. And Luke Groman lays it out as well as anybody I've seen, but I I know I've talked a lot. I want to take it one step further though. Since I spent my entire life in the junk bond markets, I'm very sensitive to credit metrics. I can look at a company really quickly and say, okay, the rating on this company should be, you know, double B based on this interest coverage ratio, this type of uh, leverage, the industry it's in, et cetera. Well, I'm going to say, I'm going to give you the conclusion really quick. If the USA was a corporation based on its debt metrics of simple interest coverage of around one times, which is to say the USA only has about one times excess revenues over their entitlements and their military spending, you have one-time interest expense coverage. A one-time interest expense coverage ratio for a corporation puts you as a triple C. (laughs) 
full stop, triple C, okay? One notch above the double C level, which indicates financial distress and restructuring. You can't suck and blow, okay? This is where the USA would be if it was a corporation. Now, the rating agencies say, well, you can print money. That is true, except when your money becomes worthless. In the case of Argentina they th or Venezuela, they throw the money to the curb, okay? Yeah, you can print all of that money you want. No one is taking it from you, so therefore, is that a default? In my argument, that is what credit default swaps are projecting. The potential for a default, which is a, you know, an actual default included within that is a devaluation of the currency to the point where, okay, we printed all this money, but no one would even take it. There is your risk. And everyone says, okay, well, the USA is too big to fail. It's, I agree, but not with 100% certainty. I don't want it to happen. But when you're a triple C rated equivalent corporation, you're basically a zombie country. And that's the best horse at the glue factory. Yeah, it seems pretty dire right now. I mean, this conversation is happening because I wrote this newsletter a week ago on Friday, right. which highlighted uh, a chart from Bloomberg that James Lavish posted, which highlighted right. the spreads, uh, uh, for, like how far away each country was from their, their average CBS average, spread. Correct. And correct. they're all very far on the end of the spectrum away from the average. That's a three month. And the truth is, uh, you know, we're not even at highest levels of stress in the system. When you get the potential for a credit suisse or even worse would be a Deutsche Bank. Because if Deutsche Bank needs help, which they do, their credit, their leverage metrics are ridiculously thin uh, or protection levels are ridiculously thin. Let's say Germany has to step in to help now, uh, Deutsche Bank. Well, then all of a sudden, Germany, which is the sugar daddy of Europe, is not able to help its southern neighbors as much. And the EU experiences stresses in that system. There is the Armageddon scenario, as far as I'm concerned. We don't have to worry about the USA. What you really have to worry about is the European Union falling apart. So in James's thing, you can see the stresses in Italy, for example. Uh, in Portugal, the infamous uh, pigs, right? Uh, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Uh, I, that acronym, I'm not naming it. That was a great financial crisis acronym that, uh, uh, you know, still holds the same amount of concern, in my opinion, today. And in fact, is worse today than it was in the great financial crisis because the credit metrics of the countries are so much worse. So James and I are good buddies. Uh, we conspire on a lot of the stuff he, well, I should, conspire is a bad word. We we consult. I consult with him on a lot of the stuff he publishes uh, because we both spent our lives in the credit markets. And uh, yeah, I'm, I fully endorse his analysis. He also put out a great analysis on the reality of the USA debt spiral. It happened to be the most read piece of, uh, you know, his most read Substack report. I'm glad people are reading it, finally getting the word, uh, you know, the news out. If you were a, a teenager with a credit, uh, with a habit of spending on your credit card right now, the, 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 
the responsible parent would not allow you to have another credit card and in fact would rip up the current credit card that you have. Well, you can't rip up the USA's credit card, but man alive, it's going to be very scary if people finally wake up and say, why am I lending to this? This is just throwing money into a, a black hole. Yeah, and it's particularly precarious right now because you have this energy crisis and this war going on and the Fed tightening at the same time. But it's hilarious. The Fed tightening, if you look at the monetary base chart, the tightening, like you have the monetary base going know, like zero bound up here. Yeah. And they've and only tightened. Yeah. They've tightened this much and it's completely destroying yeah. global credit markets. And it's being exacerbated by this energy crisis, which is unfolding. Yeah. So you have all these input costs globally, but more particularly in Europe going up significantly. Uh, which is making it hard to actually conduct economic activity, which is making it hard to sell goods, which is making it hard to make profits, which is making it hard to pay off debts. And it's the contagion, the contagion. It's that's the worst thing in a credit market. Okay. Is contagion is well, a biatch. I can't say the end of the way, but you get, um, uh, it becomes circular. Imagine, I keep saying, and I don't want this to be the case either, but Canada will likely fail, I, I say a decade, but let's even say it's three years before the USA. And we're in bad shape, okay? Like the, the, the credit metrics of the USA are not looking good, but Canada is like off the charts worse, okay? And the rating agencies are, are refusing to acknowledge it. That's probably political or, you know, they realize there's too big of a, right. a risk to downgrade. It starts the, the run on the country, essentially. But if, if 2008 look, taught us anything, the credit agencies are nothing but uh, just a placeholder. Except, believe it or not, there's investment policy guidelines within large funds that say I have to own AAA rated paper. Believe it or not, Canada still has one notch higher credit rating than the USA. Canada's AAA, USA is AA+. There are investors in the world who will have to sell Canada if it even gets downgraded to the level of the USA. And that selling causes bond price pressure, which causes yields to go up, which makes the credit metrics look even worse. And there's your contagion or circularity of a debt spiral. So, you know, getting back to it, if Canada were to fail as the USA's largest or second largest trading partner, depending on the statistics you look at, uh, don't you think there'd be pressure on the USA economy that Canada is not able to buy all the goods and services from the USA that it does currently because it can't afford them anymore? What do you think that does to the USA's economy? So there's circularity. Um, play that with every country in the world right now, uh, because the US dollar wrecking ball is causing some serious pain throughout the globe. And, uh, I'm not really sure what the fed is thinking quite honestly. Like I cannot believe that they are this blind to the reality of the credit stresses that are building in Europe. And it appears that they are blind to it. Uh, yesterday's speeches by some of the fed governors was quite honestly it's sickening you know it's really sickening they get us into this mess and they're too stubborn to tighten when they should have and you know wringing all that blood out of the stone at the lowest interest rates possible and then they come at us as you mentioned with the highest most uh uh 
you know, the, the highest and most uh, speedy uh, tightening of overnight Fed funds in the history. And we're at three and a quarter percent overnight rates or Fed funds. I don't think they can get to four and a half percent without something blowing up first. That could be a small country. It could be a big financial institution. It could be a combination of both. But that's what markets are telling you right now. The system is fragile. It's on the edge. It's teetering. And these monkeys at the Fed are like, if they're not blind to it, they're driving us full speed through the guardrail and off the cliff. It's like you heard Larry Lapard say it, right? We're bouncing off one guardrail and the other. And it's just, uh, it's a clown show. It really is. And uh, another thing as it pertains to the Fed, like they're using these lagging indicators. So today we have the jobs report that they're all like, oh, look, the jobs are, I mean, our unemployment is not as bad as many people thought it would be. So <laughs> they're definitely going to raise It's lagging, rates. but that's so lagging, eh, Marty? And the other yeah. thing is uh, the reality is the revisions, right? This is what, you know, you got to be looking, you got to have forward looking uh, numbers. The, the dual mandate of the Fed, uh, full employment and uh, low inflation at times like this is uh, not, uh, not attainable. One is, it's like they designed that, uh, you know, realizing that, well, in times of stress, you can't have both uh, low, you know, low unemployment as well as contain inflation. So that's the problem. But the third leg of their mandate, which is financial stability, that's the one that I really think will cause them to take their foot off the brake and perhaps I'm, you know, it, it depends how you define a pivot, but I'm going to define a pivot as saying, I feel it's unlikely they will get to four and a half percent Fed funds before something breaks that will cause them to have to, let's say, pivot, meaning not get to four and a half percent. Yeah, because it certainly feels like things are already beginning to break, but I do want to really lean into what you brought up, which obviously with this policy that everybody's you know, the dollar milkshake theory essentially playing out in real time, everybody funneling into the dollar, and that's exacerbating inflation throughout the world. And we really just need to lean into and highlight how nefarious of a, of a system this is, how unfair it is, how it, it, it's anti-human at the end of the day. It really uh, is disgusting to a certain extent because... Um, like you said, they got us into this mess and now they're trying to get us out with this crazy policy and it's it's wreaking havoc on global markets and increasing suffering globally. That's the key. Yeah. It yeah. is increasing. You know, the, the, the I I you know, I'm doing my I, I love Bitcoin because I know my kids are gonna need it. And what hurts me the most is that the Fed is invoking uh pain on many millions of children, uh, it, primarily in less privileged nations than, uh, than Canada and the United States, but eventually coming to Canada and eventually coming to the United States uh, in the form of either a global depression or the fact that is they'll have to live with high inflation. You know, they've brought inflation back to the system and it will not go away quickly. So that's a hidden tax is, uh, you know, uh, Mark Moss and others frequently say. So neither outcome is good. The flip side is all paths lead to Bitcoin. So I think they've painted themselves into a corner. 
I'm not certain they know what they're doing. That being said, I'm almost positive they have no idea the, the suffering that they are invoking on the least fortunate of, of the world. No, and this, I mean, this obviously it's always a big topic in Bitcoin circles. Like when does the dollar use its, lose its status as reserve currency of the world? When does this whole debt bubble actually pop and be, reach a point where it is unfixable no matter how much... QE you do, you can't fix it. And just socially, I mean, the U.S. as a U.S. citizen, um, considering the last two decades of foreign policies, and now we have these two things running in parallel where we've had very intrusive foreign policy that I would argue has created more enemies than uh, actual people who like us for spreading democracy. Um, And then in parallel, now you have this financial weapon, that, that first weapon's kinetic warfare, going and actually killing millions of people innocent people who should not have died and then in parallel you have this the financial weapon that is we're bombing these countries and then we're destroying their currencies so that they can't even pick themselves up from their bootstraps to uh, develop a an economy that that allows people to to get through life and not only get through life but climb up the ladder and make their their life better there i would say as succinctly as i can if it wasn't for bitcoin I would be apoplectic, you know, like it's just, I, I'm so thankful, not just of the instrument, but also of the community of like-minded people who seem to care. Uh, Having spent my career on Wall Street and Bay Street in Canada, but primarily trading with Wall Streeters, um, you know, the world is probably 85% takers to begin with, right? 85% of the population of the world are probably takers and 15% are givers. And on Wall Street, it's probably more like 99% takers and 1% giver. Okay, that's just the the reality. And in the Bitcoin community, it's the flip. It's like 85% of Bitcoiners are actually givers. They they care. And there are certain, and I, you know, obviously I'm just playing the math. I not going to point people who I think are takers within the Bitcoin community, because let's look at the positive. Like it's so such a positive community of people who want to try and help. Now, some of us, yourself included, need a, you know, our, our bedside manner is, or our table manners are a little uh, rude. Right. And, uh, you know, but we got to call out the bullshit. And, and, you know, the other day I, I like Ray Dalio is like an icon. It, I, our hedge fund that I worked at, we studied his risk parity model very carefully. It was our CIOs. Oh my God, this guy's brilliant. Well, Ray Dalio knows everything about the problems we lay out, the debt problems and everything. He knows Bitcoin is the solution, yet he doesn't have the backbone to endorse it. And I would just challenge him on your podcast, like I've tried to do on a couple of others. Mr. Dalio, I mean, I, my hat, I tip my hat to your investing prowess. You melt the Fiat Ponzi like a champ, okay? You were absolutely beautiful in milking the Fiat Ponzi. What I would love you to do is join our side and try and do something good for the future of the kids. Um, and that future revolves around Bitcoin. And it's a challenge that you know, the likelihood of him accepting that I, I'd say is very low, but it's not zero. Uh, it can happen. It happened to a guy like me. I'm not nearly as successful in the fiat markets as uh, Mr. Dalio, but I didn't do badly. And what gives me hope is that 
I'm just trying to teach people the same stuff that I learned. Like it cannot continue, as you said. And the longer that we whistle past the graveyard, the more severe the consequences are going to be. And those consequences will be borne by my children and by my children's children. And if I just sit here and just, you know, count my fiat dollars and go and play golf all day, I'm not going to feel very good about myself. So, Ray, come on, buddy. Get a backbone. Let's go. You know, what do you step think, up to the plate. What do you think prevents the Dahlias of the world from, I mean, obviously they recognize the problem and hopefully they can come to recognize like Bitcoin is a very obvious solution, but there seems, uh -huh. there does seem to be this cognitive dissonance or self-censorship or they're inability. Paid, they're paid not to understand it, Marty, to begin with. And then if they do understand it, I think they would be viewed as a turncoat within the TradFi uh, business community. And the question is, are you able to live with that? Now, there are people that are live, able to live with it. And these are white guys like Ross Stevens, who's the brilliant head of NYDIG and also was one of those extremely successful TradFi guys. Hey, he has no problem coming out and writing a letter that I still believe was the greatest shareholder letter I've ever read in my life. Uh, and you know, there you go. He puts his, he signs his name on a piece of paper that says, these are my beliefs. These are my principles. I'm going to tell the truth as I see it. So it's possible. Uh, but then you got to fight the academics of the world who really will never understand it because they're not bright to begin with. Okay. Any guy that is an academic failed on wall street, because there's no way that you can make as much money in academia as you can on wall street. But if you can't work in Wall Street, you go to academia. Well, we have to battle those knuckleheads, but then you also have to battle the guys who are paid not to understand it, right? And uh, like Jamie Dimon, like what a pathetic congressional uh, uh, hearing he participated in, the banking hearing where he says, I love blockchain, but I hate Bitcoin because it's a Ponzi. Well, he clearly has no clue what a blockchain is then, okay? And like, you know, the fact that he's on Capitol Hill making this testimony, you should short JP Morgan's stock uh, either because he's a liar or because he's really that silly. And either way, doesn't invoke confidence in the guys who are paid not to understand Bitcoin, right? Why? Well, because he'll be disintermediated. His business, his banking business gets disintermediated by the beautiful technology of Bitcoin. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very frustrating. But like, th that's also maybe how we pitch this to this class of people is like, yes, it will disintermediate you. But if you get on the ride early enough and you disintermediate yourself, the, the benefit that you'll provide not only yourself, but your company will far. Or, how, or how about that? Let's take it one step further. Your country, okay? And this is why a young man, Jason Lowry, who uh, I've come to know and has been on some absolutely brilliant podcasts recently, is talking about, you know, the importance of national security and proof of work defending, uh, you know, the uh, sanctity of your, uh, of your money, your savings, rather, and your property rights. Um, you know, blows me away. This kid blows me away. And all I can say is I don't care that much about companies anymore as much as I do about countries, because that's where we have accelerated this too. We've continuously kicked the risk higher up to the point where 
it all lives on the balance sheets of the countries now. And the only solution, in my opinion, is the El Salvador model for, you know, truly huge nations, though, not just a six million, uh, six million citizen nation like El Salvador, but, a, you know, a 30 million, 36 million citizen country like Canada. I mean, we can absolutely change the lives of our kids with some very good leadership at the country level. Yeah, we need that. And that was like one of the things, again, last week there was a big meme about Credit Suisse and their CDS spreads. And who knows? I don't know if Credit Suisse is about to go under their stock. I'll certainly. tell you, I know. Stock I know. certainly looks very bad. In the stock list. is a rounding area. You can't look at the stock because it's worth about $10 billion right now against trillions of dollars of assets. So it's like the stock is a, an option. The CDS market is real. The CDS market is telling you there's problems, but it's not deathly yet. They better do something because their cost of funds as a bank is now 7 to 8%. That doesn't work, okay? When you have 7 to 8% cost of your own money and the market is paying you on U.S. Treasuries 4%, and then you have to go, you're not going to lend to treasuries all that much because you have a negative, a negative gap, they call an interest rate. You're not going to pay 8% to earn 4%. So then you say, okay, I better go out and get a higher yield by adding on a credit spread due to junk bonds or anything like that. Well, then again, you're making the system more tenuous because you're increasing credit risk on your own balance sheet. So they need a wholesale injection of capital. It's not, you know, I've seen numbers like 6 billion. I don't even think 6 billion would be even close to being enough. The point is their whole market cap of equity right now is 10 billion. You bring another 10 billion in, you've diluted your existing equity holders by a half. Yeah. Okay. That is not a good scenario, but it's better than having to be nationalized because then the equity holders get a bagel. And they can invoke things called bail-ins where the depositors actually start losing money, right? A bail-in, which was used in Cyprus. So all of these things are potential. And you get these guys who pretend they know how to analyze credit that say, oh, Credit Suisse is fine. No, it's not fine. It doesn't mean that it's gonna end, but the risks are right there. It's smoldering, okay? Don't whistle past the graveyard. So Credit Suisse is not in good shape. Does it mean it's over? No, not at all. But it's certainly a lot harder for it not to be over when the rest of the world is on fire as well. And that's the truth, right? If Deutsche Bank was in bad shape and there was a, you know, an argument that they recovered a little bit, but that was into a booming economy. They're still haven't fully recovered, but they had a, a bit of a restructuring effort that put them in better standing in the risk markets, if you will. But that was, they had the tailwinds of a, of a booming global macro economy. Credit Suisse doesn't have those tailwinds. In fact, they have headwinds because the macro environment is brutal. Anyway, I've been ranting a lot, Marty. Um, I just, you know, it's all about credit. It's always all about credit. Credit's the dog, equity's the tail. Don't even look at equity markets right now, people. They're going to go up and down like a toilet seat because vol is high. Emotions are raw. One day of a rally, everyone feels good. Guess what? Right in your face. Sold to you <laughs> the next day. And 
you feel like a chump again, okay? Until the credit markets settle down, we're in for a rocky road. And the credit markets won't settle down until the Fed either slows down or something breaks and they have to invoke full-scale easing. But then the great financial crisis took about two years to work itself out. So don't expect this storm to pass quickly in any uh in any scenario yeah it's it's going to be a rough one prepare yourselves but to shift to more theoretical maybe bitcoin can fix this conversation we have a portfolio company at 1031 battery and um they're really they come from like a credit market background and they're trying to get creative with injecting bitcoin into credit products um uh, to to lower cost of capital and, and sure. make better credit products out there. Or uh, one idea that they've mulled around, I've talked to their founder, Andrew, about is basically going to pension funds that, that have a lot of uh, credit on their, yes. on in within their funds and going and restructuring the lower tranches of those debt products with Bitcoin to, wow. to maybe um, save uh, a failing uh, credit products and it's the same it's it's my thesis uh you know as in you know my thesis titled uh why every fixed income investor needs to consider bitcoin as portfolio insurance it's exactly the same thesis uh in but you know the hedge that i was talking about now becomes a uh, collateral uh or a credit enhancing uh ability for the fixed income portfolio to reduce their risk. It's the same thing mm -hmm. said dif differently. So IDB, uh, I I'm rooting for those guys. Because um, when you think about the term soft landing, in my mind, this is the only way you ever get a soft landing is if there's some, uh, there's a tipping point in the psyche of markets, fixed income traders specifically, or people who have heavy amounts of, of debt uh, within their pensions that are that are depending on cash flows that probably aren't going to be yes. there. Like yes. If you can, if there's a a market moment where people are like, all right, let's basically wash your hands, recognize that this debt is not going to return what we thought it was uh, in terms of revenues Perfect. in the future. Like, let's go in and restructure some of the tranches here with Bitcoin. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. I would I would hundred percent you know endorse that. Uh, operation i mean it's all the devil is in the details but conceptually it certainly uh it certainly works and uh yeah it, you got to solve the credit situation before you even see true recovery of equity values because credit ranks as a prior claim to equity so your if your credit's not fixed your equity is an option and it gets flung around like a rag doll yeah with that being said, too, what are your thoughts? Like Bitcoin's just been hovering in this eighteen to twenty twenty yeah. K range and all this chaos. I mean, I'm pretty, just... I'm pretty actually I like the price action. I have to be honest. Um, you know, I we had our uh Lehman moment. When I say we, the Bitcoin community's Lehman moment could have been considered early summer, right? With the US Terra and uh UST and Luna. Um and then, you know, throw on top of that Celsius and other levered selling throw on top of that elon musk coming out and say that tesla sold theirs 
everything else considered, I mean, I think that Bitcoin has stood in there like an absolute star. Um, but I'm not smart enough to tell you whether it's going to trade through 10,000 before it trades through 2 million. But I like the odds that my fat tail, my long tail uh, price target is that I don't care. I'm not smart enough to tell you that you should buy it at 18,000. But let's get fancy and wait till it hits 14,000 or 10,000. Guys, that's not how you trade asymmetric return opportunities, okay? You just buy it, you keep buying it till you get to your waiting, you reevaluate as the information changes. Well, I think the odds just went higher that my 2 million price target will come true. Therefore, add a little more on weakness, add a little more on strength. Doesn't matter because the thesis of the global fiat system unraveling is really coming fast, okay? And so that's why Bitcoin right now is the best ever in the lifetime that I've been studying Bitcoin, the best ever risk-adjusted trade. Not because its price has gone down, but more that the world has started to unravel. This is the this is why you need the insurance and the fire which was all the way over on the other side of the valley has now crossed the valley and it's coming up and it's lapping on your back porch and the price of the insurance fire insurance hasn't gone up holy crap you got to be happy about that yeah it is insane because it does feel i mean i'm somebody who's been screaming like the the global financial system is going to have a meltdown for mm -hmm. the last decade it certainly does feel last three weeks particularly that things are being irreparably irreparably broken behind the scenes well, right now it takes time because uh and and it's not and again i don't want it to happen and it will happen uh in periphery countries first but there's a great author by the name of john malden who wrote a book uh, that uh that i'm reading right now he wrote it in 2011 though and he was basically calling for the the unraveling of the fiat system in 2011. And, um, you know, it was right at the height of the uh, sovereign debt crisis, the European sovereign debt crisis right there in 2012, when Mario Draghi said, we will do whatever it takes, the, the Draghi bazooka or whatever. But you have to admit, it felt like he was going to be right then. And lo and behold, you know, 10 years later, we're still cutsing around, but everything's gotten way worse. The COVID uh, response, you know, he wasn't aware of that. He wrote the book 10 years ago. So, you know, it can go for a little while longer. Uh, when I say a little while, you know, certainly another decade, but the risk is that it doesn't. And that's why you need to be prepared because slowly then suddenly. Yeah. And that's why this time around, I mean, Again, I don't want any of this to happen, but what gives me more confidence to say that this may be it, again, going back to the energy crisis, yes, it's sir. the most important asset on the planet. I mean, it's the base of the whole global economy. And if you fuck up energy infrastructure, energy supply chains, and then like we talked about that doom loop earlier, if that doom yeah. loop is seriously beginning to come into play where you can't afford the energy to produce goods so you default on your credit and then you can't afford to actually go explore for more energy like that's 
that's what keeps me up at night these days. Well, rightly so. Now, I was on a Spaces conversation with Swan Bitcoin the other day, and uh, Jeff Ross, Dr. Jeff Ross, uh, go said, said something about heavy oil and Venezuela, and I I said, Jeff, do you know who has uh, so much oil? You have no idea. And I actually was mistaken. I said we had Canada had more oil than Saudi Arabia. I was slightly wrong. We rank number three in the world behind Saudi Arabia. But my God, we live right in your attic, Marty. We we <laughs> we live it risk free in the attic of the USA. We have more oil than Russia, Iran, Iraq, Libya. You know, we're living right up here in Canada, world's longest undefended border. You guys canceled the Keystone Pipeline. I mean, therein is. Now you're going down to Venezuela to buy heavy oil out of Venezuela. At least our heavy oil in Canada is cleaner, you know, to the extent that environmentalists are concerned, the Canadian process for heavy oil, which is what a lot of the refineries in the USA need, is much cleaner. And you decided to cancel the pipeline, you know, it's just, there, there is the infrastructure that you guys could have had. So, oh, believe me, I know. It's 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 frustrating. Well, it's frustrating for Canada too, right? Because what would have been the mutually beneficial uh, uh, outcome there? Uh, you're not draining your strategic pro, uh, SPR as fast. You're uh, you're paying, you know, a friendly neighbor. I know you guys are lucky to have the Canadian Army and Navy to protect the USA from the north, but. Uh, I, I'm kidding, obviously, because that's why we live rent free in your attic, right? You, I don't, you know, we're we're like, uh, but we are a, a, a solid partner, and uh, we have, we're blessed with large natural resource, uh, oil, uh, you know, water, yeah. hydroelectricity, uh, all these things that uh, you know make us a great trading partner, and then you go well, why didn't you construct this infrastructure? And well, the politics speak for themselves. Well, the, the socialist dictator down in Venezuela is much, a much better partner to be dealing with. You Canadians at this, are... at this time. Yeah. At this time it, it appears, but anyway, you know what, but, um, I, uh, I'm still optimistic. We have to be right. We have to win for our kids. Uh, it is not easy, but there are, uh, you know, rays of hope. Um, we have a, a contender for prime minister in Canada, opposition leader, Pierre Poiliev, who, who gets it. You know, he's on about inflation. He has endorsed Bitcoin in his own personal portfolio, although that's he's coming under opposition attack because, you know, the price of Bitcoin's gone down since he came out with it. But that being said, he understands the Link, link between the energy sector and the potential Bitcoin mining. And, you know, we have a, we have a nuclear reactor in Ontario that uh, at off peak hours, not only do we sell power to the USA cheap, we actually pay, <laughs> we mm -hmm. actually pay citizen, the peninsula of uh, Michigan to take our power. Pay. Yeah. When it be, the baby buying some Bitcoin. I mean, you know, but uh, anyway, what, what comes around over time, hopefully will be positive outcomes that uh, lots of Bitcoiners can see.
No, didn't I see? Maybe it was on Twitter or somewhere else. Wasn't there a premier in Alberta who was just elected? Is very pro Bitcoin. Pro That's correct. Well. Yeah. Uh, so that was just uh, to uh, uh, the the new uh, premier of Alberta, correct? Yeah. That's now I see. didn't see about Bitcoin. That I'll have to do more research there. But I will say that you know the power company that I'm involved in in Canada is. You know, we, we do take a lot of incoming calls of concerned politicians and that. So that's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think Steve Barber was tweeting that she, she right? It's a woman? It is a girl. That's correct. Yeah, she's um, she gets Bitcoin mining and how it helps the energy sector. So that's good. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We need to, we just, yeah, energy is good. We just need better leaders. We need Bitcoiners to get into place of power and just be like, all right, we're going to fix this. We are going to win at the end of the day. I know we've been a bit doom and gloom here, freaks, but you should know we are going to win. We have the truth on our side. We have the smartest people in the world working on this problem. And we're getting better from the narrative perspective, too. We just tell a better story at the end of the day. We're going to tell better stories. That's what people We are We We are the marketing department of... Uh, of Bitcoin, but we're rookies, right? Like we, we're not a paid marketing department. We gotta, we gotta get our, uh, our game together a little bit better, but even guys, not even, but you know, my hat goes off to, uh, uh, you know, Dennis, uh, and, uh, his, his, uh, in, his desire to advance the Bitcoin, uh, uh, mining agenda within, uh, Capitol Hill. Um, you know, these are driven, young, smart people that are successfully telling the story, right? And I don't know, Marty, I, I don't have a choice. Um, I certainly don't ever want to go back to traditional finance. I know that because <laughs> that's a, uh, that is a, uh, a mugs game. And, yeah, well, I certainly uh, can't. So it's, it's all or nothing for me. Yeah. Well, keep up the good work, my friend. Um, I know we're bumping up against the one hour time frame. I don't know how long you, uh, you had blocked off for this, but I could go on forever, but I think people tend to come after me by always saying the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm the Bitcoin bingo guy because I keep saying the same thing over and over. But I'll actually have to say this. The reason I have to keep repeating myself is because most people don't listen. I mean, I've been waving and ranting on this credit default swap problem for sovereign nations for close to two years now. I wrote that paper 20 months ago. I look back in that paper and I'm like, whoa. I wasn't bad. Like what I see happening now is exactly what I was worried about 20 months ago. Not only are bonds down 22% since then, that's a risk-free asset has lost 22%. Mm -hmm. But Bitcoin has hung in like a champ and the insurance, the value of that insurance is higher than ever. So not trying to pat myself on the back. Once again, I wanted to thank you for being a, uh, a great host, uh, getting me uh, the airtime that allows me to, uh, uh, you know, go out and spread the word. I'm going to be in Amsterdam with Jeff Booth, then in Bulgaria, and then in Edinburgh with uh, Larry Lapard and Jeff and a bunch of other uh, uh, pretty cool Bitcoiners in the uh, Edinburgh conference. And I know that the the timing is perfect in Edinburgh because of all the crap that went on in the UK mm -hmm. financial markets and they're getting a turnout that is blowing them out of the water. They can't believe how excited people are for them to have a UK Bitcoin conference. Well, I mean, people are waking up. They understand. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think that's this. where Odell. Where did you say Odell was going to? Oh no, Odell's going to be in, in in Amsterdam, right? Amsterdam, yeah, he'll be at Amsterdam right. Bitcoin uh, Magazine Conference. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll be there too. So, man, it's always good to uh, to to get revitalized uh, or recharged when you see your own uh, oh. your bre- your brethren and uh, your brothers and sisters, uh, you know, t- out there fighting the good fight. So, um, oh. there's nothing better than meeting Bitcoiners in person and. I want to thank you. I mean, you don't have to thank me for bringing you on. I brought you on because yeah, I think the thesis that you have is very compelling, very interesting, and very important for people to understand because as we've discussed, the situation is pretty dire. And if people get caught uh, with their pants down, not understanding the situation, it's it's not going to be good. And so the more people we can educate about this and get smart about this, the better because hopefully one man at a time, we can begin to put people into the life raft and, and lessen the blow that is inevitably on our way. Well, the thing that, and thank you for that, Marty, uh, the thing that makes me the most excited are the young kids that are coming on board. And then I'll be very honest, the the, the young ladies and, and, and women that are coming into the space, like, man, there are some, I, I just, there's a, a lady that works for the Texas Blockchain council i think called natalie smolinski or something do you know mm-hmm. her anyway she was on a uh on a podcast the other day and i'm like wow just love the message i love the delivery i know that you attract more bees with honey than you do with vinegar and i'm not really good i just throw vinegar that's all i'm good at is just spewing the vinegar right and so sometimes it's good to have the, the honey bees uh around and uh so hats off to the kids that are bringing great info Dylan LeClaire, man, I think you're, uh, you know, you're my brother from another mother, or maybe you're my son from another marriage, but <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to go there, but, uh, like it's all, it's, it's cool. It, you got these smart kids, you got, you know, every, you know, nation in the world has different, we're going to Bulgaria and they're so excited that, uh, that they're hosting myself and Jeff and Natalie, uh, Brunel, for example, it's like going on a, a, a concert tour. I feel like some sort of, uh, you know, rock star and, uh, and it's just beautiful to, uh, to try and share the, and, and, and share the, uh, the knowledge that uh, 35 years of, uh, of trading and financial markets can, can bring you a different perspective. I'll just sign off by saying this, what I bring to the table is 35 years of mistakes. Okay. People. And the reality is though, is that I've survived those mistakes. So if you actually think you're going to skate through a trading career without ever making mistakes, well, you're a knucklehead. You probably make, if you're a really, really, really good trader, 60% of your trades are good and 40% of them are bad. And the key is to, is to control the 40% bad ones. Let the 60% ride, control your losers. That is the challenge. Humans are not good at that. But if you learn to control your losers, you admit you've made a mistake, you bring those war wounds to the next fight and you're smarter for it. So Bitcoin in a nutshell is the best asymmetric trade opportunity and hedge or investment, however you want to decide, describe it, that I've ever seen. I can't say it any other way. The best asymmetric trade opportunity I have ever seen. 
And I'm not 100% certain that my $2 million price target will come to fruition in today's dollars. But just do some quick math with me and we'll sign off. The market is trading at 20,000. And I have a $2 million price target in today's dollars. That's to say the market is giving me a 1% chance of being correct. 20,000 divided by 2 million is 1%. Okay. I'm not 100% certain, but I will look you right in the eyes and tell you I'm way more certain than 1%. Okay. I'm way more certain of my price target than the market odds are giving me. And it's like going to the Kentucky Derby this year, knowing the pony that won shouldn't have been trading at 80 to one odds. Wasn't certain he was going to win, but 80 to one was stupid. And if you would watch that pony train and knew it's time, you're like, I'm a buyer. I'm yeah. a buyer. I'm a buyer. So that's how you have to treat expected values and risk opportunities in Bitcoin. Don't despair. You are managing risk correctly by owning an appropriate amount of Bitcoin in your portfolio. The wrong, only wrong allocation is zero. You figure out what the right allocation is in Bitcoin. Yes. Because if your allocation zero, you're about to get stampeded by a bunch of the losers that the uh, the governments can't control right, right now, which is their, their sovereign debt. And who knows who else is exposed to that outside of the governments. Well, there's no other level. We can't we can't kick it to Mars unless we find another civilization we can dump it on. We are at the uh, we, there's nowhere else to kick it, right? Like you've 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 bumped it up to the highest level of uh, of panic, and there's no other level to, to to push it to. Well, even if we could, if an alien civilization did come, you'd think that if they're smart enough to get here, they'd be smart enough to look at the. The, uh, <laughs> situation down here. They They're... would take our Bitcoin before. They might, <laughs> they might have come and said, "Hey, we designed Bitcoin about a million years ago." But at least you guys finally discovered it. You know, like or we, they didn't see. I don't think Bitcoin was designed. I actually think it was discovered. And so we could get into a whole tangent on that part. I agree. Much like I think math wasn't math wasn't designed. It was discovered. Okay, like it's there. It's the laws of nature put in beautiful a beautiful language called math. And uh, I think Bitcoin is a little bit like that. And I don't want to get too off, like, let's focus on the here and now. But Bitcoin very simply has some properties that make you go, wow, this is unbelievable that this was actually, you know, an invention or discovered within the context of Earth, all the other shit that exists on Earth, and we were able to figure out Bitcoin. I mean, I, I tend to agree. I mean, it's cryptographic hash function, it's validation rules, and a difficulty adjustment. It's Difficulty adjustment. Brilliant. We discovered Absolutely. It. Yeah. Unbelievable. Right, buddy? Yeah. It's, uh, it's very underappreciated right now. And I, I agree. agree with you. Here's the market uh, pricing your $2 million price target at 1% odds is insane. People don't appreciate the difficulty adjustment. That Just understanding that alone. Uh, I think would send the expected value above $2 million, far beyond it. But that's a conversation for another day. Well, or we just sit back and we say, okay, like, you know, we give a target, but not a time. And more importantly, the people that need Bitcoin most are most advantaged by being able to buy it still at a ridiculous, ridiculously low price relative to melting US dollar fiat. So 
mine your fiat, buy some Bitcoin, hug your kids. I'll see you guys wherever. But thanks. Thanks for having me. We got four sevens on the block clock right now. It's that's a good luck block right there to end it on. I'm, a, I'm very, I am very uh, uh, superstitious. I think I said that I, I sent out a tweet, but I'm not sure if I ever told you. I just passed, thanks to you and other guys that I, I'm, when I see 1111 on, on the clock uh, during the day on a digital clock, I'm like, oh, that's good luck. And I tend to see it very often. It's weird. And I, I'm not the only one because when I sent out the tweet, but I just passed. 111,111 followers on Twitter, thanks to guys like you. So there's my lucky number, 111,111. And uh, yeah, I'm superstitious and I'm going to keep fighting the good fight uh, because I have three kids and uh, I care. I care about the future for my kids and for my kids' kids. So uh, go Austin. Uh, How about that Texas... uh, Alabama game, eh? That was uh, sick. But uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll we'll pick it up in a bar, just you and me, and we'll have a beer. I, I look forward to it. I can't wait for that day. We're signing off here at block seven five seven five seven seven freaks. Go enjoy your awesome. weekend, Greg. And you too. Happy Thanksgiving from Canada. It's Canada's Thanksgiving this weekend, so happy Thanksgiving from Canada. Well, enjoy the time with your family before your travels. Absolutely, my friend. Talk to you soon, Marty. Thanks again. Peace and love, freaks. Take care.